Welcome to the Untangling Web3 podcast, your go-to hub to learn insights and the latest developments in the wild and wonderful world of Web3. I'm Alec Burns. And I'm Jack Davis. Tune in each week as we navigate and explore the rapidly emerging landscape of the Web3 technologies, projects, and ideas that are shaping the future of the internet. We'll be talking to the best and brightest in the industry to keep uncovering insights. So that hopefully we can all learn together on our journey to untangle Web3. Welcome to another episode of the Untangling Web3 podcast. Today, we're delighted to be joined by Sean Griffin, co-founder of Object Layer, a company revolutionizing data ownership and secure sharing across the internet. With a rich background from policy advising with top secret clearance for the Canadian government to leading comms for blockchain R&D giants, Sean brings a wealth of experience in guaranteeing secure and accessible data management in the digital realm. Welcome to the show, Sean. Hey, Alec and Jack. Nice to be here. Hey, Sean. Yeah, we're really ha happy to have you here. How are you doing today? I'm good. I've been excited to talk to you guys all day. Actually. I'm looking forward to this. Really <laughs> oh, that's lovely. Well, we've been excited to have you on for a long time, so I'm sure this will be a, a great conversation. So, um, Sean, I know, I know we have known each other for a little while, actually, uh, in, in the space. But can you just give us a very quick intro summary to your background professionally, your early career? Because I think, there's, as, as Alec alluded to, there's some interesting things in there that we'd like to hear about. Yeah, so I mean, I was fortunate. I began my career with the government of Canada in a bit of an advisory role, so always working in head of agency. So in the UK, the equivalent would be the uh, permanent secretary's office. So in that way, you really become about moving information around. So you're really an advisor to a very senior person and helping data move around effectively in a very manual way or an analog way. And one of my jobs involved the International Development Agency, where I was really the conduit for every memo around project funding, anything over about mm -hmm. 100K on a total portfolio of about $2.5 billion a year that was deployed. All of those memos came through me. And so that included, you know, full things that were going to cabinet versus things that were just re requiring a little bit of mm -hmm. authority. And all of that went through me. And so it really ingrained this concept of, okay, managing access to this information is important. And in that analog world, we'd even have, you know, faxes come from Afghanistan where you'd have to sign out, like I got to see this for this amount of time. And so all of these things mm. that now I see happening in the digital world, I'm like, wow, that's a way back to right when I started, when we would actually, you know, with file folders and papers and stuff where people <laughs> would come to your office and be like, Sean, can you sign out this fact? Well, what do we call that in the space? Don't we call that a single point of failure? You were the original <laughs> single point of failure for the Canadian government, basically. Yeah, I, I mean, and again, it was all coming through my office and, and I was there to help the, the deputy minister basically triage all of this to help them say, hey, these meet all of the things that you've asked me to review. Mm -hmm. it's, I think it's a pretty simple file for you to look at versus, hey, this is a more complex thing before it goes to the minister. And so you are right, like a very single point of failure but it also gave me a tremendous view of what it meant almost like an air traffic controller of what does what's yeah. required for a system to make sure the right people have signed off that the right documentation is there uh you know there was one example where after i'd left a file that sat on my desk for a while became news in canada and various people were hauled in front of parliament to explain like what had happened with this file mm. and why certain decisions were made and i can remember like what was documented where because it was really you know, it was contentious <laughs> at the time, let alone when it made it, you know, years later out, out in the public. And you could see very clearly. And so when I came eventually into working in blockchain, I was already aware of things like what are time stamping and why does it matter? Yeah, okay. But more from an analog world, not from the idea of like, hey, let's automate some of it. Got you. So that that you, you kind of alluded to it there. What led you from this single point of failure in the Canadian <laughs> government to the world of Web3 yep. and blockchain? You know, to be honest, I come at it as a fan. So maybe different mm -hmm. than other people who came at it from looking at the technology and wanting to solve problems in terms of building a business. I actually came at it as a fan. So the thing that irritated me 
was not owning my digital files the way I could mm -hmm. physical files. Um, I've talked yeah. to lots of people with this. I have a large media collection, whether it's DVDs, CDs, vinyl records. I like collecting that stuff. I, I enjoy having it and I enjoy having access to it. And it really irritates me that I don't digitally have that same ability. I'm always tied to a platform. There's always an intermediary that determines my access or can revoke that, even though it costs me the same. And when I moved to the UK a number of years ago, the one that I've always joked with people, like I had a movie where, you know, it's a big Lebowski and the DVD is sitting on my shelf. And then the Apple version of it got stuck in Canada effectively. <laughs> like I can't access it from, from over here. And that to me, was the beginning of it. And so then when I began working in blockchain in the UK, that was the thing that resonated once I understood this idea of control. And then mm -hmm. it gives us a way of controlling data in a peer to peer way where we all think peer to peer is the enemy. That's where we fall down. That's where Napster happens. But actually being like, wait a second, if we structure it properly and the architecture is good, peer to peer could give us individual control. And that to me is what got me really excited. And to be honest, that idea hit me probably firmly. Um, another guy that both of us know, Andy, me and I had a conversation and that's where it really came from for me. And that led me down a whole rabbit hole that's, that's mm -hmm. you know, a couple of years in, in the making right now of me really being like, that's very cool. As a fan, I could have the thing that I want. And mm -hmm. in a way, that's really been a bit of, you know, that you say what brought me into it was the idea that nobody talks about the fan in a way. They talk about the distributor, they talk about the content creator, but the fan actually plays an important role mm. in all of this. That's just like your opinion, man. <laughs> Sorry, I had to. <laughs> you can overlay a meme. <laughs> I, had to, I had to get that in there. Um, now, that, that's really interesting. And I think from a lot of people we talked to, actually, when you expect people maybe have just got a professional background in blockchain and Web3, actually, there's always a personal story behind it and, and people discovering on their own what the real problems are that, that this is solving. And I think, yeah, the data ownership aspect is something we've talked a lot about in other episodes. And I think it's so interesting. And I know that you're tackling this with, with your company, Object Layer, in, in a slightly different way. But I, I want to first get your take on the concept of NFTs and tokenization, right? Because I think this yeah. will feed into how we talk about object layer. But, yeah. you know, what, I know you have a, diff, a slightly different take to the mainstream on it, let's say. So what is that? Yeah. So, again, I think tokens are, it's easy. Tokens are just a digital representation of something, and it tends to tie to a database somewhere. And that can be privately. So I think one of the things when we talk about NFTs is people act as if it's a totally new thing. The element of it that is new is that it's a public database that you're drawing from. But tokens exist in all modern software, right? Like that's how you get access to and from services. Apple yeah. has their own versions. It's just in a closed system. And so I think... The, for me, at least, the understanding that tokens are not new, that interoperable tokens and moving them around is not new, that we know this. But what is happening with NFTs is now we're actually saying, hey, wait a second, if we use public ledgers, public databases, we can interact directly with more confidence. And in a way, what it gives us is the security that Apple can exert over the entire Apple ecosystem, which is actually stunning when you think about the security that they deploy to say, that movie can only be accessed by these accounts. Like it, it's mm. rock solid. It's really good. Mm. And they often use similar type of technologies. And so for me, the NFT really being that, but now brought to a public place where all mm. of a sudden all of us can rely on it. It begins to take actually that security that exists elsewhere. And I really think of it as a security protocol. It brings it to all of us. So instead of us having to be Apple to have this, we can each have it for whatever we want to own or whatever we want to control. It, that yeah I, I like that i mean that, that's incredible i think it's i'm a big fan like i understand the collectibles i'm a gamer so i've always understood understood yeah. nfts and i think the early adopters of nfts were collectors right collections kind of it seems like it's an innate human quality we love collecting and yeah, proving yeah, yeah. that we have these collections but it seems like an asset layer you're sorry object layer doing one more you are moving further and not just having an nft as a representation of ownership it actually gives you utility which me and jack are a big proponent of and we'd like yeah. to talk a bit more about what how can nfts provide utility so i think that that's they always have utility it's just how mm. thoughtful are people in delivering what that is so even if we take board apes which lots of people will malign as it's, it's a jpeg out in the cloud we can all have a copy of it like who cares but you could layer utility after the fact and you could say hey anybody that owns five board apes is allowed mm. into this party and you you've already deployed utility on top of something so yeah. really what it is is what do these tie to and i always think of in the real world what do they tie to maybe it's a digital good but if we if we start thinking about 
the utility is why do I care about this? The token is a technology that gives me certain attributes. And as I said, I think that attribute is the moving ownership around and being able to mm -hmm. validate who has that. And then the utility is for people like me and other businesses to say, hey, how can I give somebody unique utility? How can I give them what they actually want? And you know, we started this with me being excited around media. So that's what I want to help people with is say, hey, mm -hmm. actually the utility for me is owning your data and data is mm -hmm. always in a form of some type of content or media. And so let's help you own that so that you can move it. And that's the utility you want. Other people will look at things. And I think Alec, you're right that gaming and collectibles is an easy one because it quickly moves you into a space with people that were used to mm -hmm. collecting mm -hmm. things in games. They were used to, you know, you get the award, you get all of this, you yeah. get your XP mm -hmm. and that moves with you. So it made sense that that's where it started. And, and you know, you had asked before the, the show about utility NFTs. And what I think is interesting there is it's really just showing that the market's maturing in a way. So I don't want to malign anyone. I actually think it's a natural thing is you mm -hmm. prove, can we do the bait, you know, like network tokens. So whether it's Ethereum or BTC, that's proving that tokens can move around and can secure the network. Mm -hmm. And then it's a provisioning system. And now people are beginning to say, wait a second, maybe we could do more interesting things with that. So I don't want to suggest that it's nonsense, but in a way it's a marketing term that mm -hmm. created, say, hey, these are utility NFTs, but there's always a utility to them that can yeah. be layered before or after. I think the better you articulate what that front end utility is, the better the adoption will be. So if I say, hey, buy this in one day, it might be worth something. Uh, unlikely anyone cares about that, right? But if yeah. I say, hey, today, this ties to the following concrete deliverable and service for you, people are like, oh, that has utility or it mm -hmm. doesn't. And I can and I can actually, and then it becomes a market. People just priced it accordingly. Yeah, and I, I, th I think we're maybe guilty of this, right? Because sometimes we, I, I definitely tend to talk about utility NFTs. It's basically NFT that is doing something more than just a JPEG ownership. But even those do, as you say, they, they can confer some utility because they allow you to make a claim, right? That I bought this directly from the, the original artist, like the guy who bought uh, Jack Dorsey's first tweet on Twitter. Okay, it's it's lost 99% of its value, but he can still make the claim that he legitimately bought that from the originator, right? Yeah, and, and I think maybe if we even on the collectible level, we think you know, lots of collectibles decrease in value. Like if we think of hockey cards, mm. or, you know, I'm Canadian, so I'll talk about hockey cards. Most of them decrease to zero and they're, they're mm. just garbage cardboard. But every now and then one of them has extra value because it actually was given value by something that happened subsequently, right? So, oh, that player became famous or whatever. And I think if we think of tokens in the same way that... Many of them will be discardable and you would burn them and there, there's nothing there. And some of them will have residual things because people will collect them. So if we think of the, like, you know, Nike put out those $50 shoes, right? Like the JPEGs mm. of shoes or whatever. They're probably not worth anything anytime soon. But my guess is at some point in the distant future, if somebody owns the entire Nike shoe collection, people might find that interesting, right? Again, because it could be that Nike might say, if you're the guy who owns all of this, we give you a free pair of shoes every, like whatever it is, yeah. you could make that decision after the fact. And that's also novel too, right? I think that that's a bit where maybe when looking at them and saying, hey, it doesn't have value, we're missing that there's actually future things that people can do with them because what you're saying is you're registering ownership of effectively an entry on the blockchain, right? You're, like, you're saying, hey, this is a uh, representation of this, transaction or whatever this cell in, in mm -hmm. gives you access to that's pretty powerful too and i and i think again the utility nft is one way of people beginning to explore what could it possibly be that we're going to give people access to yeah you're completely right i feel a bit guilty now for coming after these people that are just doing <laughs> nfts of board apes i think it's like me and jack come at it from the technology standpoint right and it's like it's kind of difficult it's, it aligns with the whole crypto debate and what is crypto and crypto bros and all this yeah. stuff it's like the metrics for success for crypto and nfts are quite related it's all about speculation it's all about what's the value does the number go up does the number go down and i've always i've always thought of you know, cryptocurrencies blockchain nfts as like piping and trying to really provide utility and benefits for application all the people on top yeah. it's always been for me the problem is the metrics that define success right now aren't right and you, you are completely right like ownership is utility and i think it's not a binary definition of nfts versus utility nfts it's just how much utility do you get from this nft that's the question we should be asking yeah and i think you you kind of alluded to a couple interesting things there but again it is a process of people beginning to understand like 
you know, it took me a lot, a long time and a lot of thought and a lot of research to really understand why is it so powerful that I could own a discrete entry in a public ledger. And that's, I think what the space is realizing is people are beginning to move through that concept of originally it was, hey, it's just speculative value. And now people are realizing, wait a second, I could use these to transact a whole number of things. Yeah. And then we get into a thing that, you know, we talked about in the sort of the preamble around, you know, different chains offer different attributes and you might decide that one is better than the other. And I know certain people think, hey, it's going to come down to one or two main chains, but there's no reason we couldn't have a plethora of them. And then it becomes the bridging technology to move your record from one chain mm -hmm. to another. And that's really from one database to another. And when we think of that, I actually think it starts to look to help people that aren't experienced understand it. That starts to maybe look like single sign-on. Like if all of a sudden mm -hmm. my record can move from Apple to Google to this, that, that's a single sign-on type feature. And yeah. I don't know that people talk about it that way, but that to me is when we start thinking of these databases working together. What we're talking about is true control. I can control my data and move it the way that I could move, again, uh, a vinyl record from Canada to the UK and I can move it to mm -hmm. Japan and I, can move it, and I can always play it. That's what we're also really talking about with control. And I think sometimes that's been missed in the discussion that a lot of this is mm -hmm. working through how those mechanisms control will work. And you're not going to start that with, you know, the greatest thing ever. You're going to start it with a really modest proof of concept, like can these things mm -hmm. move around and can we actually secure a network? And I, when I think of Bitcoin or Ethereum, you know, the last decade has really been about proving that you could secure these things and it can work. Right. Mm -hmm. And now we're getting into yeah. interesting things. And many of the CTOs I've talked to, they get it. They're in enterprise or they're removed from the, but they get it. They understand those attributes. They're just waiting for it to be mature enough to work. Mm -hmm. And I think that's another bit that, you know, it's just that we should be honest with. It's a totally novel way of doing stuff. And the internet developed without that and not to do that. And now some people are coming along being like, Hey, wait a second. We almost have a whole new way of doing this it's going to take a lot of time because people are going to expect mm -hmm. to see a mature piece of software, something that delivers everything. And it's yeah. just not there yet because it's being built. Exactly. I think that's really interesting, right? Because at the start you were talking about, you know, okay, we've always had tokens and tokenization and now we're just doing it in a slightly more efficient or, or manner where, where we get different properties and, and attributes and even applied to your, your kind of basic JPEG type NFTs, the the fact that they are on a public blockchain of some kind and you get the long-term record of ownership not just you know while you're while you might own it but you might want to yeah. prove you owned it well after you well after you've sold it on in the future right there's so many use cases for that um one thing i wanted to touch on while we while we're kind of in the quagmire of uh, of terminology so i know you kind of prefer the term object in general and, and can you talk a little bit around that and why why that's your phrase of choice I mean, it specifically has to do with the way that we've looked at building the software. But to me, it was this idea of the first time I understood it, I was trying to work through what is a key and what does it give you? And I kept getting lost in the different formats of data and, and the different ways people would talk about it. And all of a sudden we're like, hey, ID is different than media, which is different than this. Mm. An object allows me to remove that complexity. It, it allows you to, to basically elevate to a very simple level, which is in the physical world, if I talk to you about objects, you're not confused at all. You might be like, what mm -hmm. object are you meaning? And then we could talk about it and I'll point at it. And so for me, talking about objects removes the complexity of tokens. And we start talking up, again, to get right into utility. And if we're talking about mm -hmm. objects, then I'm talking to you about what's the object you care about? What's the thing that you care about and let's define it and secure it with this technology so that we can move access around. So object is in one way is for me to basically remove out the complexity of all of the formats. And I think that to me is also part when we look at what this solves is so many solutions and networks applications, they're built to run on their own. And so they mm -hmm. don't work because someone's built a thing to be like, hey, this is a really secure way to do chat. So here's a secure chat. And then somebody over here is like, hey, I found a really secure way to do DRM on movies, right? So then the rights are managed on the movie. And you're like, well, wait a second. What if we just realize that all data is, is at its source a binary object and mm -hmm. then build from there? And that's 
Mm -hmm. It's almost a completely inverting where you're looking from. Um, And that's where I've, you know, sometimes struggled explaining to people because really technical people will be like, that's not true. And I, I understand them, but I also don't agree with them because I was like, right, if you get lost in the engineering complexity, it's easy to, yeah. to really pay attention to these. But if you begin looking at it from what's it giving me, object to me helps that. It makes it easier to talk to people about it. So they're not thinking about a token. They're thinking about what is it that I'm trying to control? What is the thing that I care about and what do I want to move? Mm-hmm. So um, with that, we kind of talked a little bit about your record collection. That was a good example of like how an NFT could work. Are there other real tangible, and this, this podcast is all about tangible examples, right? I yeah. always thought you were there. very good at giving everyday layman tangible <laughs> examples of things, no pressure. But are there other yeah. like use cases you can think of for NFTs that people you know, in their everyday lives will understand that really solve real world problems? Yeah, yeah. let me, I'll give you one that we're working with. Um somebody right now on so that it's an enterprise they help run capital projects so building mm. large kind of real world venues you know and and here you have groups investing hundreds of millions of dollars into something and they're thinking i want to share this information between organizations so again let's just take a very simple one a pdf i want to share this pdf of this kind of commercially sensitive mm. information with four people and we're all in different organizations that immediately poses a problem because if I email it, I have no record. As soon as I've emailed it, it blasts mm-hmm. everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. If I give you access to my G Drive, I have some controls. But again, if you remove it from G Drive one way or the other, I have none. What mm-hmm. tokens and NFTs allow is allows me to say, hey, I'm going to create four access credentials to that PDF. Now we're not worried about the file being replicated because mm. the access points can't be replicated. So all of a sudden, in a way, you create back to the very beginning of where I started my career. Like you create the thing that moves around <laughs> like somebody's signing it and it's moving around the office. So in a way, what you're actually creating is with documents, you're saying, actually, I do I want to restrict the number of these that exist? And there's lots of, I think, economic and philosophical like rabbit holes you can run into that because it's a fascinating thought. But at the mm-hmm. core, I think that's a great one. In enterprise yeah. data, you start to say, hey, we want to share stuff, but it's confidential. And if mm-hmm. we move physical paper around, we have confidence that people won't be copying it or we know what's happened to it. We should be able to apply that to data. And I think that to me is a really tangible one where with mm-hmm. that group, they don't care about NFTs. And in fact, actually, when they find it's NFTs, they're almost off put by it. But the concept <laughs> of, of what it's helping them with is what they're interested in right because once you say hey this is an Mm -hmm. nft they're like what uh i don't i don't i don't want to be a part of that but when you say this is a way for you to have security over your data and you control it you decide Mm -hmm. who sees it how they see it and under what terms independent of a platform and i think that's the the other bit with tokens that really that independence from a platform often people talk about decentralization and lots of really great terms but what it really just means is I can move it directly between people. And mm. that's, that's really fascinating because again, another real world example, chats or video chats, like we're streaming on this and we have to be on the same platform, but actually my phone can phone a rotary phone the same way it can phone the latest iPhone, the way it can phone, you know, an old satellite phone of some kind. Right. Mm. And so if we begin thinking about connecting that way, so you remove some of the security concerns, it actually results in, I think, more efficient software because the software is really just trying to handle specific Mm. forms of data. So when I said object allows me to think in a certain way about it, but then it allows developers and programmers to build data handlers for specific types of objects, right? Mm. But you're not having to embed security and you're not forcing people into specific software or specific ways of looking at stuff. Yeah, that's. I really like the document one. I mean, one you've come full circle. <laughs> you've solved the problem that you had like six, seven years ago, which I like. But also, like, it's so tangible. I get it. And even I imagine like the idea of four separate parties all accessing this single document using like blockchain technology. You obviously have a degree. I can measure that there's a consistency of the terms within that say document between all four parties, which must be very important in a lot of ways. Yeah, and and so one a natural extension of that is you know. I know, actually, Jack, I saw you uh, a ton of patents in the last few years. I saw you recently on Twitter, <laughs> somebody claiming they should. But patents is a great example, right? So on top of patenting ideas, we also have trade secrets where we don't want anyone to know that, where it's a patent, you're making mm-hmm. a public claim. But 
trade secrets come with requirements around do you gate access? How many people have access? Are you able to prove that you didn't do this? And that's a great example of a PDF or a mm. document where we would say, hey, this is a trade secret. This is the key to X algorithm that drives our business. And only three people are supposed to have access to it. And we need to track mm. it. We need to know that. You can get really complicated and we can nerd out deep on how you could daisy chain a whole bunch of credentials to be like, I need to be on this type of device from this IP address with this credential for before I could open it. But just at a basic level, I think we could all understand that would be really powerful if we could say, actually, I definitively know that only yeah. three people have ever accessed this. They're tied to these accounts and we were able to secure those accounts with the same thing. It gives you a really, a really good way of being able to say, I want to enforce that that was a trade secret and somebody breached it. I can prove I did my due diligence. I did what I was supposed to do to protect my my information and my confidential information. Mm -hmm. I think that's the other bit is the audit record becomes mm -hmm. instantaneous and really interesting from an element of we can just quickly check that. Yeah, there's a there's so many things there to dig into, right? I think I completely agree with you. When you're talking about things like trade secrets and audit, they're things where you want to make reliable, robust attestation that you can prove down the line. You don't want to prove it at the minute. It might be in 10 years you reveal what happened, but it, it, it's going to be something that you, you still need the infrastructure to attest to that, that fact. Um, I'm really interested. So I think we've heard some of the components of how I think object layer works here. Can you describe a little bit more like in practical terms, how, how does how does it work? And what yeah. are you actually building? Because when, when people you know talk about Web3 products, they sometimes will go, oh, are you just going to be a man in the middle again? Or are you doing things yeah. in a kind of Web3 way? So the way, yeah, what we've done is basically built at a very simple level for people to understand safety deposit boxes for data. So if you think of if mm -hmm. I go to a bank and I have a safety deposit box, I can put any object in there and it doesn't matter. But there's two keys on a safety deposit box. There's the one that you hold and there's the one that the bank holds. And to get into your safety deposit box, both of those have to go. So the way that we've built a solution is to say, hey, we should have the same type of containers for data. No limits on size, no limits on what can be held in that. Again, an object. So then we get very literal in terms of in programming, you can define objects. But then mm -hmm. let's put basically two-factor authentication at that level. You need a token, an NFT, which says, <clears throat> I'm a registered owner, or this account, mm -hmm. or this wallet it, address is a registered owner. And then associated with that is an encryption key. And that encryption key gets you into the container. So you need both of them. So again, if I hack in, and I get just the encryption key somehow, it doesn't let me in because I need the record. Mm -hmm. And the record is the hard thing because it's secured by this public network that would take mass amounts of money you know, to mm -hmm. compromise mm -hmm. and it would be very public that it was happening. So at the core, that's what we've built, I think, is to think of safety deposit boxes. I love that with thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. And then with it, with it, with a pretty simple decryption viewer, you can just integrate it into anything. And I think one of the, the bits, you know, I've been working on this um, at business for, for a year and really it's helping people understand that blockchain addresses and, and connecting with blockchain is not terribly difficult. It sounds daunting, but actually you can integrate wallets and all of this into any web browser. They can be plugins or they can be standalone apps. And so the, the limitation is not much. Basically, anything that can have a web browser can connect to the blockchain and be able to validate records and then be able to decrypt them. And so when you ask, you know, are we just trying to be a, another man in the middle? No, what we're hoping to do is be equivalent of your locksmith being like, here, I'll let you put a lock on whatever you mm. think is important. And we'll give you a bunch of templates and a bunch of ways to do that. It's infinitely customizable, but at the core, let's give you some templates. So that could be messaging, it could be publishing media, it could be storage, like a storage vault would be a more advanced way of really looking at how do we do that. And that's, the, mm -hmm. that's what we can maybe dig into. But giving people that and then saying to them, once you have that, you know, I think where we'd love to go is have the point of the decryption viewer be an open source tool and say to mm -hmm. everybody, hey, once it's been created with this mechanism, you'll always be able to open it kind of like mm -hmm. the PDF. You're always going to be able to view mm -hmm. a PDF that no point is PDF viewers going to disappear because it's out there for everyone to build. And in the early years, you needed, you know, a license or some type of software that let you 
create them or edit them. Now it's a bit more open. And I think that would be similar to what we're trying to build with object layers. Say, hey, we built a really clever way. It's not quite a file format. It's not, I'm not mm -hmm. sure how to talk about it. The protocol is not, mm -hmm. but basically it's a way for you to secure stuff, move it around confidently, and then always be able to open it. So I don't necessarily like the idea of always, you know, lots of people like taking a cut on all future royalties, mm -hmm. trying to do this. I actually think for our business, we should go to people in a very old fashioned way of like, hey, you need to put a lock on something. Here's your lock. Now, I do you like want to that. pay? You know, do you want to? Do you want the software on a white label basis so mm -hmm. that you can run your entire thing on it? Do you want some APIs? But it's a core. Let us help you lock down your stuff, and then you do whatever you want. You also define who has access, how they have access. That's totally up to you. I don't want anything to do with that. I just want to help you lock it down so that you can then exert some level of control. I understand. That was going to be my question. So, in this like lockbox analogy. Can enterprises have their lockbox, whatever they want? They can store it, you know, on-prem, in the cloud, wherever they yep. want. And you just provide the locking software effectively that just sits on top. It can either be run by them, it can be run by you as a service. Is that completely yeah. configurable? Yeah, I think you've, you've got it, right? It just sort of sits there. If you think there is the data layer and then there's mm -hmm. applications and then there's a user on top, we're just sitting between the data and the application. And we're saying, okay, let's enforce some rights on what the application can do and by extension, what the user can access and see and do. And we sit there. We've built a reference implementation, to be honest, because when I started this, I was like, oh, this is amazing. We just need to do this and we'll be off to the races and everyone will think we're geniuses and like no more work done. But not true because again, back to that bit about the networks and some stuff being immature, we weren't able to get it working properly. So we built a reference implementation with a multi-chain mm. wallet with mm. credentialing, with publishing, messaging, and we're sort of going through the beta testing process there to say to people, here's a reference. Mm -hmm. It's a reference implementation. If you want to do your own thing, we can find a way to support you. But at the core, what we're helping you is really exert that control. And then mm. you do whatever you want with it. And I think enterprises, they could look at it and say, we want to gate everything this way. I think when we really get into what storage can look like for this, it becomes fascinating to me because there's two main attributes that might not be obvious to everyone. One is this completely inverts a bunch of things. I no longer care about transmission of my file. My mm -hmm. file is an encrypted yeah. container. Mm -hmm. I don't care. Actually, from an availability standpoint, it's like back again, you guys are a bit younger, but back to Napster, I want it seated on every node, every computer, everything, everywhere because then my availability is perfect. I can always access it at lightning speed. But the the access point is discrete. That's the thing mm -hmm. I care about. And that's the thing that's secure. And so in, in a way it inverts, everyone's worried about like, I don't like my files moving around. So then when we look at enterprise storage, people could say, actually, I'm gonna build a really nice vault that has this two factor authentication for every version of a file and let the wallet and the credentialing system deal with the complexity of that. But I, as the user, I now have a vault that only has a single way in. If you come in from a from just law, you know, hacking into the, the the store or whatever, every one of these is double encrypted. And therefore, man, if you don't have any identifiers on it, I might, you know, the, the joke I would make is I might spend a whole bunch of money and it's like Jack's birthday card that I decrypted. <laughs> it's not commercially confidential. And I'm like, man, that was a waste of millions of dollars. And so in that way, actually, we start to deal with ransomware. And, I, and this is a bit that I, I've begun talking to people about. And it's, I, I got to work through it a little bit. But what if you were ransomware impervious because you no longer care about people accessing your store and taking stuff from you. You're like, it exists everywhere. I, it, it's on every network, everywhere it can be, that file exists. Mm. Because mm -hmm. I have confidence that the access point is discrete and that you can't break in. That makes a whole bunch of programming and network decisions a lot easier for people, right? Mm -hmm. Because they don't have to be so worried about every one of us having our own security protocol and mechanisms and, and you know, m mass number of people trying to protect your data. We're like, actually, we're letting the public network do that, which is a, is a different, difficult thing, I think, for people to wrap their head around that the public network is going to secure my individual rights. Yeah, I don't know that many people get to that conclusion easily.
This aligns with so much of what we've been talking about. I mean, you imagine a few, I mean, GDPR is the current buzzword, right? Like debt companies yeah. shouldn't be owning user data, all this kind of stuff. So there's been huge amounts of push from you know Web3 companies to push it to self-sovereign <laughs> models where I own my data on my device. So there's no issues with GDPR. And this kind of setup makes so much sense. I don't want this data moving around from point A to point B. I want to keep it here and just manage the access to that data on my terms, which is it's a very sexy Web3 cell, right? Like the perfect example of how this would be used is health records. I've got my health records on my mobile device. I want my doctor to check it at that moment to say, you know, do you have this disease or do you not have this disease? Yeah. But I don't want that doctor having it 10 years down the line. I want them to have a single instance of that data when but, I give access to it. Yeah, so I think also the other bit is, you know, lots of times when we talk about it, it's like that. It's like, I don't want that person to have access past, you know, what, what I think they should. But there's another more insidious one, which is I personally want access to those records. I yeah. moved here from Canada and I still don't have my dental records. Mm -hmm. The guys in Canada are like, no, we're not going to send them. We need a whole bunch of paperwork. And I'm like, but wait a second. I'm never returning to you. There's zero chance ever in my life that you are cleaning my teeth ever again. So like, <laughs> it's not a competitive thing. It's not like I'm, I live down the street and I've gone to your like competitor. It's like, I live across the planet. I'm, I'm never getting my, my, my teeth cleaned with you again. Can you just give me my records? Like there's, mm -hmm. you have no value in having the x-rays of my teeth from 10 years ago. Like, like, what are you doing with that? You're just wasting storage space. But even that, I can't get that from them. So I think it's actually when people realize it's mm -hmm. both ends, it's the back end security, but it's also the front end accessibility for users. And that's when I came yeah. really talking about this as a fan, I think also that is just a user. Like I'm not like you guys, you know, technically aware of everything that's going on. I can't do a bunch of that. That's not where I came from. I came from, I would just like to have my record have confidence mm, that they're my records exactly. and be able to move them. That would be fascinating to me. Yeah. And and again, the health records is such an easy one because it touches everybody, right? People are like, mm -hmm. wouldn't it be great if I could have that? Or I have a paranoia that somebody's consuming that and doing stuff, which, you know, I think that also, you know, we'll talk about it. It feeds through a little of the web three. There is this feeling almost like there's a paranoia, like who's, who's got your records, like who's <laughs> doing this. But it's big. And there was the story, I don't know if you guys saw um, recently, Wired put out something around that Google was behind the scenes, like you would type in whatever, and they would actually swap that into basically a term that would search for an advertiser. Like they Not were really. kind of doing, a, they, were, they were editing the query behind. That was the story. Wired puts it out there. You read the headline, I read the story. And then like four days later, Wired, it's like, oh, we don't know that that met our editorial standards. Like we we're taking this story down. But for me, the damage has already happened. I'm always like, Google's already screwing with my records. Yeah. And mm. so actually in a way, I think what would be good for everyone in Web3 is to talk about, it's not necessarily this paranoia, but actually there is a reason why we have miscommunication because these things exist, Definitely. they happen and there's no record. So now mm. Wired has taken down the story. It doesn't, actually it just tells you like we made an error but so nobody can confirm what the error actually was down the line <laughs> and there's no responsibility that editors and a journalist put out stuff that may or may not be true mm. and when i think of me as a reader i only came at it because i was looking back i like wanted to look into something i read in the article and I was like, they've taken it down oh yeah. <laughs> but, but you know what otherwise i would be walking around telling everybody about did you know that google's doing the following to you i'm telling them where did you read that and i'd be like on wired and they're like well that's a credible source like sean's a well-read guy like you read it on wired <laughs> and then actually we'd go and we'd be like there's no record of that sean where did you create that and then i'm the source and so i also think when we have the web3 discussion around that and and the record keeping it is the can I let somebody see something? But then if I've made something and let people see it, is there a record that I did mm -hmm. that? Exactly. Yeah. It kind of creates a chill, I think is the word is the worry that some have. It will create a chill for how online um, interactions happen. I think that's just people who don't understand HD wallets, to be honest. Mm -hmm. You can easily firewall your identity uh, and you mm -hmm. can easily hide behind stuff, but there will be a record. And you know, when we talk about object layer, one of the things we have to be careful with is while I just want to give you the ability to lock stuff, I have to be careful who we give that to, if we're honest, because mm -hmm. a lot of the Web3 stuff, and, and I think we've seen it with the way the crypto space developed, it's actually great for people who are doing things outside the law, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, one of the best, <laughs> one of the best crypto backed uh, websites 
is a drug dealer. Like I've seen it it's in the UK and it's truly amazing the way they take in what, what you and I would be like, wow, that's the greatest like web three store I've ever seen. <laughs> and to sell drugs and you're like, they're like, wow, they've, they like, what, did they work with me? <laughs> like, I really understand what they're doing. I, but again, I think that's one thing we have to be careful with is figuring out who has access to these tools and how they do it because it's giving a power that hasn't currently existed, right? That idea of being yeah. se secure, direct, peer-to-peer, -peer, but then also free from anybody knowing what you're doing. Um, mm, exactly. It, so, it, it, it creates a, a, you know, just a balancing act that I think do have Definitely. Sure, we, we'll edit that bit out, Sean, it's just so no one thinks that you are actually <laughs> backing organized crime with what you're doing. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, there's a couple of things that I've picked up on, right? Because again, loads of that is resonating with what what we think about Web three as well. I think what's so powerful, only just kind of clicked in my head about what you're doing. You said you're inverting the model, right? So you're not having to share data every time. It resides in one place, but you're you're also articulating it's residing in the right place. It's it's residing with the actual owner, and and that applies yeah. to the healthcare data. Uh, healthcare data use case to corporate data it shouldn't be leaving premises where are, are owned by that owner and you should just be provisioning access it makes perfect sense my question is because when i put my tech brain on i then start thinking oh cryptography keys all this stuff and i start thinking of all the ways this could go wrong right so i'm wondering for object layer is the kind of usp this whole paradigm shift because i think it's, it's something quite new i don't see many people doing yeah. that or is it kind of in the way you're implementing it to safeguard against some of those kind of potential issues? Uh, to be honest, I think it is the, the concept <clears throat> writ large is, is the mm. novel, unique thing. The, the fact that we're looking at completely inverting stuff to be, what does it mean to be in control? So I can give you a couple examples. We're talking about that. I think uh, cookies is a great example. I go to a website and somebody drops something on me and it follows me around. Now let's think mm. about that in the real world. If you went into a store and they dropped a bug on you, <laughs> that would be like catastrophic that they would go out of business because you'd be like, they're following me around the planet. This is crazy. And you would sue them for a bunch of stuff, but digitally it's okay. Mm. And so one thing that we've thought about is, well, with these, you could begin, those cookies could be again, have utility. So let's say I'm a fashion brand. Mm. I could say, Hey guys here, I'm giving it to you for free. Here is this, the, the fall winter, um, runway show here's the video you can see it but now i know that you like it and i can communicate with you and so now again there's an interesting way that you've inverted you've been forced mm -hmm. to compete for their attention mm -hmm. but now you have a direct way and as a user i could just no longer connect to that address and you can't bother me or i could burn the token and mm -hmm. i would not be on your distribution list anymore there's a number of ways to deal with it so i think what we're really saying is the unique bit is if you can guard at an object level, and again, I'm not a security expert, that's not where I came into this, but I've mm -hmm. done a lot of research on that now. And the concept of object-based access controls is pretty novel in terms of people have talked about it, they've said it would be great, but there isn't an implementation where people have used it writ large across everything. And with object layer, we're being like, actually with a clever design, we might be able to do this on the internet level where the mm -hmm. internet is based on objects, which it is by the way that browsers render things and all of this, wouldn't that be fascinating if every one of those objects that we care about, we're not gonna care about everything. And I think that's the other thing that gets lost in the, in the talk about tokenization of everything is not everything will have value, right? Like mm -hmm. my logo doesn't have value. I don't need to tokenize the logo. I actually want it mm -hmm. ripping around and everyone touching it mm -hmm. and all of this. My white paper, Maybe I do want that because I want to know who's consumed it. And the other bit, when we talk about this, is that it, on that control level, and when we're thinking about how this could work, imagine if now, I guess, Jack, to your point of permissioning, I'm the artist, I'm the musician, and I permission my master copy to Spotify. Yep. I now will pull, I'll know all of the calls. I'll know how often it was called. I'll know all of this. And then it's a discussion between the artist and Spotify, like does Spotify obscure their entire membership mm -hmm. and they don't give you any audience details and Spotify uses that in terms, that's their unique position that they're helping people in whatever way. Or maybe they say, hey, actually Taylor Swift, you know, you do a whole bunch, we'd love to sell you data on all of your 
listeners on our platform. So in that way, I'm not a web three type who thinks that the existing platforms die. I actually think yeah. they just have to compete differently. They have to compete for what they actually offer, not for just a broad network effect. Mm -hmm. So you, you mentioned that right now you're at, yeah, at the beta, you're talking to enterprises um, and the conversations you have sound interesting. You said you mentioned that they're, they're waiting for maturity in the space. You mentioned there was a bit of a resistance yeah. to the NFT term, which I completely get. What do you think it's going to take to get global adoption of these objects? I, you know, it's tough. So I, I came into this believing and I still do that media is the first thing to fall because mm -hmm. it's easier. I think that. And when I look at it, I, I, it sort of bifurcates into enterprise use cases where it's really about data security and trying to stop ransomware and, you know, unauthorized access. There, I would say, if we were to look at the, the two markets, that or media, the enterprises are the ones who are most immediately interested. But then they have all the inertia and all of the needs that require it to be more advanced. And so there you're like, ah, they have the most acute demand right now, but they also have mm -hmm. the highest you know, kind of barriers to entry. Whereas on media, um, I was in LA a while ago when we were talking to some really senior executives in, in media and entertainment. And they, it was amazing. We kind of stopped them in their tracks when we talked about, you know, object protections mm -hmm. and this way of doing it. And they were like, well, wait a second, we have to really think about that. And then there was like the metaverse and web three team in the room. And they were like, you're going to need someone big to do this. They're like, mm -hmm. so, the, they're like, it will kind of languish. They're like, but if you can convince a big name to do this, then all of the sudden people will quickly see it's mm. not so foreign to them, right? Like yeah. it feels foreign when I talk to you, it feels foreign. But what if we weren't talking about NFTs? We're like, it's just an album. You just opened your album. Mm -hmm. And then in the background, you understand that you could move it from any platform you want and you can move it wherever you want. And so in a way, it's like, I think people need a big, shiny, well-polished example of mm -hmm. how it can work. And then they'll say like, Oh, it's not scary. It's not new. Actually, it will it will look like an album on Spotify. It will just have different attributes underlying mm -hmm. it. And as I said, I still think many people will interact with it on a level of going to Spotify or a platform like that. But we'll be happy to the back end is artists won't need to audit their streams. They won't need to audit the royalties. They'll know. They'll have confidence. So I think that it would be interesting because the people who stand to benefit are kind of everybody in their own way, mm -hmm. but it might not be revolutionary at any one moment for an okay. individual. So I do, when we talk about adoption, I really think it needs to be, what's that use case where somebody just feels excited about it? Mm -hmm. And then it happens in a polished enough way. And that's yeah. one thing that the network struggle with. Like we've looked at a number of different blockchains and you know we, we're a multi-chain operator. We support multiple ones, and all of them offer different attributes. And so, at any point, you're like, "Oh, this is really good for media distribution. This is terrible for a storage vault." Man, okay, this one's really good for storage vault. I don't think it's very good for media distribution. So that's where I think it's also everybody. You know, back to the the conversation about utility uh, tokens, like as people understand what you could possibly do with these things, the investment makes sense. I think what mm -hmm. we've seen is a lot of investment geared toward jpegs and network tokens like i still even when you hear me talk about object controls like we've talked to some possible investors and they'll be like, well when are you going to launch your token uh i guess <laughs> I, I guess i guess you missed the last 45 minutes of what we were talking yeah. about uh, probably never with us right and but again uh, the way people have made money is this and so what it will take is also those people realizing like wait a second someone's doing mm -hmm. something more interesting there there's another application here and <laughs> and then we'll get kind of like I said, I think there'll be another rush of people looking at, wow, this is really interesting from what can I do with these attributes now that mm -hmm. the networks work? Yeah, you never get those people who are looking to invest. You never get them asking when you're launching your access token, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> So that was, it's funny because that was the one, I was like, well, if you mean by a token, will we have a shareholder registry where we'll have you know, protected information and like a data room that I'll share with you quarterly results? Yeah, totally. We'll have that. You'll have that token and that will be part of being a shareholder. Exactly. exactly. Oh, you meant a publicly traded one <laughs> the price goes up. <laughs> probably not going to happen and oh so, you meant you, know. you meant a meme coin you meant a meme coin yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. sure, sure. Exactly. I, listen i i i think you probably have uh, i'm gonna go out on a limb but i think you probably got the most open-minded take on web3 of any guest we've had so far because you've talked about you know using the blockchain as data storage layer as token layer uh you're talking about multi-chain it seems like you're just completely fully bought into web3 in a really open way 
my my worry is that we always think about regulation as well as an afterthought right and i i wonder is there a price that you'll pay and have you how much have you thought about this because you've now got lots of things to consider right the aspects yeah. of putting data on chain how you store it securely and then also any any other legal obligations around tokens and now multi-chain right how, how are you yeah. thinking about regulation in general i mean i don't think it will be a shock to anyone that i'm probably a little different on that i think regulation is inevitable we should just accept it that it's going to come but also it comes in an amazing way like i did work on a token recovery project and to me it's really fascinating because what if now we blend the best of the physical world of things being discrete but now we also have the computer type layer of where i can actually follow things and we have a great audit trail wouldn't it be great if my passport goes missing and we can immediately either revoke <laughs> it and kill it or we can recover it so i think when we look at it there's going to be tools around like we have it with object layer where you can revoke that connection between the two keys and that effectively kills the ability to open it so if we were to put a passport in there the, the government could you know kill kill it revoke that access and all of a sudden the thing is is junk nobody can access it or there could be a recovery mechanism those all go to me to be there will be regulation around this there will be like hey what are we going to do because now we have better tools we can track stuff again mm -hmm. That's why I think KYC becomes kind of important, like who is doing what? And we don't want to have public identifiers of it, but do we, we want to have somebody sitting behind who can ultimately follow that trail? And it would be a forensics trail. I'm not somebody that believes it will all be open, but the idea that it's going to be a free-for-all and regulation won't apply, I think is people who are setting themselves up for a very poor outcome. I think it's inevitable. It will happen. Mm -hmm. You can't have a perfect timestamp ledger and assume that regulators are going to not eventually kind of get like, oh, that's a really good audit trail if we apply the right governance and the mm -hmm. right sort of things to it. We could really benefit from that while people can also maintain their privacy. In the right implementation, it's the best of both worlds. In the wrong implementation, it's like the worst of both, actually, if you think about it. I mean, that's a position that me and Jack both share as well. You know, you always need a trust framework. It has to come from somewhere, right? Um, I think so. throughout this episode, you've spoken very tangibly about the benefits of object layer and made it really practical and understandable for everyday users, even people that aren't in the space. Now, I want you to flip that. I don't want you to think about a utopia in the future, like go far off as wild as you want. Yeah, yeah. What do you imagine like are some of the, the crazy future use cases you could see with object layer or more more generally for tokenized assets that are just so far removed right now? So, so the one that I think is amazing is AI. And and mm. again, I'll take a bit of it. I'll take I'll make a market in AI differently than everyone else. Imagine now we go back to the creators. Now I can permission my data into that model and we'll know are you pulling my data is that sampling so if we think of music again right like the ability to suss out have you sampled my music in that track is amazing like people are right down to like a couple chords to be like that was from this song like you own a royalty yeah. well now what if we begin permissioning that so bots can interact over permission data and when I think of that, that opens up a bunch of fun things. Like right now I have to bother you like, Hey, Jack and Alec, do you guys know anybody who's doing the following? But what if we all have bots and like mm. you've, you've agreed that certain parts of your personal data store and database can be shared with me. I can just ping out to people who shared that with me. So I think what begins happening is you get really automated behavior around really complicated things. And it becomes very simple as a user. Like ChatGPT is proving it. I just type in a thing and it starts having a conversation with me. Mm. But what if we could all control our contributions? And maybe I'm somebody who is really successful or I just don't like contributing generally. And I, I hoard it all and I'm willing to pay all of the fees to access all the subscriptions and do everything. And I'm just a ghost. Nobody knows I exist. I never leave a data trail anywhere. It costs me a fortune to, to consume anything. Mm -hmm. Or there'll be people who are like, I give away all my data all the time and it costs me nothing. I roam around freely. That will look an awful lot like today, right? Like mm -hmm. today you can generally have all these free services. And what it means is that other people track you and get to do stuff with your data. Yeah. And so when I think of that far out, all of a sudden you're going to have that whole spectrum run by the same system. And so mm -hmm. when I think about it, for me, it's the concept of the internet becoming an actual library. The internet mm -hmm. is the actual library you go to, to check out a book. And when I create it 
for my own part, I might release one copy of that book. Like, you know, you have the Once Upon a Time in Shaolin, like the only version of that Wu-Tang album exists. It's one, it's in a box. I think it's interesting that the last time it was sold, they created an NFT to track the ownership record. So again, that people are starting to understand like what mm. the power of record keeping is. But that to me, if I think really far out, wouldn't it be amazing if the internet turned into the actual media library? And there's mm. going to be beside it, the thing powered by AI and junk, and you could find anything and everything there. And we'll all just mm -hmm. be like, that's just create, that's the, that's like, you know, I don't know what that is. It's just the world subconscious. It's everything is available <laughs> there. If you want to go see it, it can be created. And over here we have stuff that has an, an owner that, you know, is attributed and that we know who it is and we yeah. know where it came from. That's really powerful because now all of a sudden the same system, when you talk about really projecting forward, the same system is both used for my own personal exploration in terms of pure fantasy world, mm -hmm. as well as concrete, this is mm. actually what I want to do. And that would yeah. be really amazing, right? I can go on the internet, I can know immediately, is that junk or is it, you know, does it have provenance? And mm. in any moment I might want junk or I might want provenance, but at mm. least I will know, right? Yeah. And so then I can go and have a lot of fun in whatever way I want to have fun. Yeah, I love that way of thinking about it. Cause you're, again, you're, for me, you're rooting it in the fact that all of this is still infrastructure in a sense, but it's once that's laid down, you can do such crazy far-fetched things with it. Like you're, you're bringing the AI piece into it. I really hadn't thought about in this way, but I'm now thinking of like an actor who will, you know, create um, little snippets of voice recording of certain moods they're in and they'll give some to one director so they can create one kind of character and they'll give some to another director and create a market for that. There's so many things you could do there. Um, that they're just completely new. Yeah, I think that's totally new and a new way of people saying, like, I, I read a funny thing about how, um, you know, Universal Music is looking to put, like, James Brown back to work. And basically, they're like, we've got all the James <laughs> Brown stuff, we're going to feed it into to AI programs. But also what we're seeing is an interesting one is there's been a bit of a rollover and a softening in the market for music um, IP. So mm. you've seen, actually, a whole bunch of the private equity firms that bought libraries from you know well you know well selling established artists they're starting to sell those and they're selling them at a discount to where they sold them a couple of years ago and i think what that that shows is the market understands without some form of gating data becomes mm. increasingly less valuable like basically there's like almost a decay yeah. of value like the moment i put it out there it just starts decaying immediately if exactly. i don't put it out it still holds some value but if i throw it out there and then it gets thrown into chat gpt or mid journey or something everybody's got it there's no mm -hmm. value there exactly. i think people are getting on are they, they see that and that's the worry that the the screenwriters and the actors and all these people had they're like mm -hmm. you're going to completely devalue everything i do yeah with, mm -hmm. with like well, one you know one 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 program devalues it all well this is a nice segue on to the kind of uh, the closing questions right because maybe we, you'll bring someone <clears> back <throat> from the dead for, for one of my questions <laughs> But sure, it's been a great episode, and I, we we always end in the same way. We like to ask our guests two specific questions, and we want to check, compare answers over time, and see see the, the spectrum out there. So the first question is as concisely as possible, and in one sentence, what is Web three to you? Web three is control. It's a, it's an element of individual control. Nice, perfect. <laughs> I love it. Um, and then onto onto the, the reviving the dead potentially. So, if you could choose anyone throughout history or alive with us today that you can bring back with AI or just go and meet in a coffee shop to talk about Web three with, who would that be and why? So, I mean, the business part of me is like Taylor Swift because I think she's hit all of the like you know like what I mean like she's said all the things but nobody has shown her how to actually do what she's been talking yeah. about for years. But realistically, I, I wrote an article recently and there was an artist called Clifford Still. I find him fascinating. So he got really irritated by the art market. He didn't like the way it worked. And so he retained all of his creations for like, I think it was like 60 years or something. And then on his death, he, he said, I'll leave these to a city that builds a permanent facility for them. And so mm -hmm. to see basically, I think it's 93 or 94% of his total output over his entire life is now in a museum in, in Denver. I think talking to an artist like that about control and about what it meant and why wow. he wanted to exert control in those ways would be a fascinating thing to say, like, you got irritated by the market. You think it's important for people to value art. You think it's important for people to travel to see art and put effort in to consume it. 
what if you now could leverage digital world in a different way? What would you think about that? Because I think of him as like almost off on a way, way far extreme of I don't share anything. It's mm -hmm. analog. It's discrete. It's over here. And he cares about control. So talking to him with the way I think about this would be a fascinating one for me of like, okay, so what if you could exert that control but it wouldn't be quite so difficult for everybody. What, 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 what would you say about that? I think that's the conversation to me, which would be a fascinating one to hear. That's a great answer. I really like that. I'm going to have to check out that museum. Um, yeah. Thank you for joining us, Sean. This has been a really incredible episode. And thank you to the listening uh, at home, wherever you may be. And join us next time as we untangle a little more of Web3. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Untangling Web3, produced by Emma Camilleri. Don't forget to send us your thoughts, questions, and comments on social media. And be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast provider to catch the next episode. See you next time to untangle a little bit more of Web3. The views we express here are our own and do not reflect the views of our employers.